0: Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. This is your host, Diana, and today we're continuing our mini series, A Tour de France. As we retrace the path of the original 1903 Tour de France, we're exploring the secret history of this country, the unknown or unexpected surprises hiding in each town and village, and sampling the regional delicacies which represent the heart soul, and history of each territory. Now that we've traveled across the entire south of France, feasting on Bouillabaisse and Marseille and Cassoulet and Toulouse, it's time to turn our bicycles north as we enter the home stretch of this epic journey. Leaving behind the gentle rolling hills of Gascony, the riders cycle for Thirteen and a half hours straight, skirting along the vast, barren plains of the Landes, an empty, sandy wasteland which stretches all the way to the sea. It's not an especially beautiful sight, but as the sun begins to set, the riders notice subtle changes in the countryside, as the sands of the landes disappear into chalky soil, miserable soil which couldn't possibly support any crops, until all of a sudden, erupting, as far as the eye can see, are lush, fertile vineyards. The cyclists of the 1903 Tour de France have entered the heart of the jewel of the French Southwest, a land with an almost mythical relationship to its agriculture, to its soil. Nowhere in France, nowhere in the world perhaps, is a territory so inextricably tied to the fate of a single type of product than here in the heart of the world's greatest wine country. It's no surprise that this week we'll learn more about the secrets of that legendary liquid, that beautiful red wine, Bordeaux. We'll also learn about the most expensive, mysterious, and surprising bottles of wine ever sold. Your happy host just won one of those fancy rabbit corkscrews at a white elephant gift exchange this weekend, so I don't know about you, but I'm going to open up a good bottle of Bordeaux. Won't you join me? Let's raise a glass to this week's episode, Bordeaux. If you've ever attended the kind of fancy wine tasting where everyone stands around staring into the middle distance holding their glass and saying things like mmm it's got a nose of ash in it and mmm piquant with a wittiness of clementine in it, you've probably heard the word terroir. Terroir is the natural environment in which a wine is produced the soil that the vines are grown in The amount of sun the grapes received. What kind of wind did the grapes receive on the side of the hill they grew on? Terrar is a handy little buzzword to throw around when you want to sound knowledgeable about wine. Unless you're like me and you can't really pronounce the word terrar, and you expose yourself as a bubbling ding-dong to all the people murmuring about noses of ash. But the idea here is that all these factors, the sun, the soil, the wind, they influence the flavors of the wine itself. Terroir is what produces a good or a bad vintage. Was the sun, soil, and wind good for the wine that year, or was it bad? But today, we aren't going to talk as much about the terroir of Bordeaux. That is, we aren't going to talk about the soil, or the sun, or the wind. Instead we're going to start by talking about the other topographical feature of Bordeaux, the feature which transformed wine from a regional delicacy to a worldwide sensation to one of the most desirable luxury goods in history. We're going to talk about the water. All waters lead to Bordeaux. The great rivers of the Dordogne and the Garonne meet in Bordeaux, forming an enormous estuary which rolls out into the wide and open Atlantic Ocean. Standing astride a boat where the rivers meet the sea, there's nothing to see until Newfoundland, just the entire Atlantic at your service, a boat waiting to carry you and your cargo to the world's markets. For most of history, the only problem was, would this boat be able to carry your cargo fast enough? Until the 18th century, wine had about one drinkable year. Back then, wine was stored in oak barrels, which did a marvelous job of holding a lot of wine without spilling, and which held up pretty well over large bodies of water. This was great news for Bordeaux's biggest international fans, the English. As it turns out, English hatred and resentment of all things French had a limit, and that limit was red wine from Bordeaux, or, as the English called it, claret. Britain couldn't get enough of the stuff. Beginning in the Middle Ages, all the waterways of Bordeaux were chock a block with ships, basically, floating wine cellars. Imagine a ship with a giant keg tap on the side, like a floating Franzia box, and basically you're not half wrong. By the year 1250, three fourths of the wine drunk by the King of England, his household, the civil service, his friends, and his army all came from Bordeaux. In 1308, King Edward II married Isabella of France, and what better way to celebrate than a commission of wine from English-held territories of France? How much do you think we'll need for the reception? Do you think 1,152,000 bottles will do the trick? Considering the enormous quantity of wine the world was consuming at the time, you can hardly blame everybody for ignoring the quality. And that's for the best. If you'd like to feel fancy for a moment, consider this. That $7 bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon that you picked up at Trader Joe's last week it may well taste better than the wine they were serving at King Edward II's wedding reception. Why? Because it would take 500 more years and two crucial inventions until the world could experience the most mysterious and crucial step in the winemaking process. Aging. You see, oak barrels are good at keeping wine in, but they're not that great at keeping oxygen out. As soon as you tap the barrel, you've got a big air pocket at the top of the barrel, turning your tasty wine into sour vinegar real quick. It's the same process that occurs when you open a bottle of wine at home and you don't finish it that night. I've heard that this is a thing some people do, though I don't quite understand it myself. In a few days, whatever's left in that bottle is only fit for salad dressings. Considering how long it took wine to cross the English Channel, those wine-crazy Englishmen didn't have very long to consume their claret. By the age of exploration, they faced a real dilemma on their hands. Sea voyages to new colonies took months or even years to reach. So how would they keep their wine fresh? Well, if you can't keep out the oxygen, there's one great way to keep your wine from going bad pour in a whole bunch of liquor and sugar. Merchants in the dockyards would pour a bunch of brandy and sugar into the oak barrels before they set out to sea in order to keep the wine boozy and not vinegar tasting for the duration of the trip. And what did they call this boozy new concoction? Why, port, of course. So for hundreds of years, this was the option. You had about one year to enjoy a bottle of so-so wine Or you had a couple years to enjoy some real strong pork. Luckily, in the 18th century, two breakthroughs would change everything. First, skilled glass blowers learned how to produce thicker, harder glass. Glass so sturdy, it could be transported safely. Second, as wine bottle shapes were standardized, folks figured out how to cut pieces of cork to squish into the neck of the bottle. This system isn't perfect, and even a well-bottled wine will go bad eventually, but compared to the ticking clock of yesteryear, the 18th century represented a revolution in wine. For the first time, folks could buy bottles for later. They could buy them in bulk when they found a tasty bottle. They could let them sit in the basement for a while until a special occasion rolled around. And when 18th century wine lovers did open those bottles, they discovered magic. When Cabernet Sauvignon grapes are allowed to age, they grow warm and spicy and they soften around the edges, and they learn to play nicely with Merlot. And it just so happens that Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot grapes make up a blend we usually refer to as a Bordeaux, or if you're British, Claret sudden, Bordeaux wine went from beloved party drink to cult favorite. The rich and well-to-do in France, England, and the American colonies began collecting wine like crazy. The first recognizable wine snobs arrive to make sure everyone knows, yes, I can detect that nose of ash. One particular American, whose career regularly brought him back and forth to France, became perhaps America's first true wine connoisseur. He spent his free time abroad visiting the oldest grandest chateau of Bordeaux, purchasing cases and cases to be shipped back home. This man? Thomas Jefferson, who would spend $120,000 in today's dollars on wine in his first term as president. He did his part to educate the rest of the Founding Fathers, buying wine for George Washington and boring everyone else at parties. After a particularly long-winded dinner at Monticello in 1807, John Quincy Adams went home to write in his diary that there was, as usual, a dissertation upon wines, not very edifying. Thomas Jefferson grew pretty evangelical about French wine, stating that he was, Anxious to introduce here these fine wines in place of all the alcoholic wines of Spain and Portugal, and the universal approbation of all who taste them at my table will, I am persuaded, turn by degrees the current of demand from this part of our country, and the delicacy and innocence of these wines will change the habit from the coarse and inebriating kinds hitherto only known here. Before America's drinking habits could change course, however, an unexpected plague emerged, one that would almost wipe out the wine of southern France for good. In 1863, in the village of Peugeot, local wine growers woke up one morning to find their vines had simply withered away. Though it would take years for French winemakers and scientists to identify the culprit, a tiny aphid named Phylloxera, it didn't take the aphids very long to destroy the vineyards of France. Phylloxera aphids have weird little mouths, which they use to suck sap out of the roots of grapevines. Doing so exposes the roots in such a way that they can't heal, and very quickly, the vines die. Within 15 years, over 40% of the grapes of France were destroyed, 6.2 million acres. It's impossible to overstate how devastating the Phylloxera blight was. Entire regions of France were broke. Locals in Bordeaux and other wine-growing regions began immigrating to Algeria and the United States, and the entire national economy suffered. Even the greatest supporters of Bordeaux wine, the British, switched to whiskey and soda as the price of precious French wine skyrocketed. You can see the effects on daily life in the paintings of the Impressionists. You'll notice their subjects are almost never shown drinking wine, because anybody rich enough to afford precious French wine in those days would never be hanging out in the taverns and pubs of the Impressionists. Instead. The average French person, the kind of person getting painted by Monet and Degas, had switched to absinthe, or the beverage quickly making its way from Alsace Lorraine into Paris, beer. As it so happened, however, there was one light at the end of the tunnel. But it wasn't a light that the French authorities really wanted to look at. You see, Phylloxera aphids didn't like French grape leaves, they liked French grape roots. On the other hand, in America, Phylloxera aphids didn't like American grape roots, but they liked American grape leaves. And it's not really a big deal if aphids chew on grape leaves. So surely the two kinds of grape could be hybridized together to create a phylloxera-free plant, right? American inventors offered to help their French colleagues, but the French shuddered at the thought of using American grapes to restore her legendary vineyards. The French government was determined to recover without America's help. As one newspaper editor wrote, any recourse to America should be forsworn until, should it come, the very day of defeat. They offered 300,000 francs to anyone who could save the French wine industry, but nobody could. By the early 1890s, with no solution in sight after decades of devastation, there seemed to be only one way forward. French venters began grafting French vines onto American roots. It took decades, but American root stock eventually propped up French grapes back to their original glory. Today, nearly all French wine grows on American roots. Thomas Jefferson died in 1826 before he could watch the great and ancient winemakers of Bordeaux crumble almost into extinction, and before he could watch his own countrymen bring them back to life. These days, Excavators at Thomas Jefferson's house at Monticello stumble constantly across empty bottles of Bordeaux. Every once in a while, however, his collection unexpectedly shows up elsewhere. Or at least, someone claims that it does. On December 5th, 1985, The most expensive bottle of wine ever sold crossed the auction block at Christie's for $157,000, a 1787 bottle of Chateau Lafitte from the private collection of Thomas Jefferson. The bottle, along with at least a dozen others, had been discovered behind a brick wall in the basement of some long-forgotten building in Paris. Soon after the 1985 auction, wine collectors around the world went crazy, snatching up every so-called Jefferson bottle they could find at outrageous prices. One of those collectors, Bill Koch, the less famous brother of the more politically minded Koch brothers, purchased no fewer than four Jefferson bottles. Bill Koch has an enormous fortune, a world-class wine cellar, and a suspicious mind. By the 1990s, Coke began wondering about the authenticity of his famous Bordeaux, and he called up a retired FBI agent he knew, Agent Jim Elroy, and asked him to investigate. For the next 20 years, Bill Coke would spend more than a million dollars, twice what he paid for all four Jefferson bottles, investigating the authenticity of the wine. Agent Elroy's investigations were obsessive, bordering on insane. My personal favorite was a cesium test to see how old the actual wine in the bottle was. Cesium-137 is a molecule that comes from nuclear fallout. It doesn't occur naturally in nature, so as far as we know, it didn't really exist before the 1940s. Agent Elroy flew to Paris with two Jefferson bottles in a bulletproof case. When he was stopped at the customs gate, understandably, Agent Elroy replied, "Eh, you just can't get a good bottle of wine on the airplane. In France, Agent Elroy had a laboratory measure the amount of cesium in the wine. Sure enough, there wasn't any. The wine itself was cesium-free, so it was definitely older than 1943. But how old? On the plane ride back to the United States, Agent Elroy ran his hands over one of the Jefferson bottles as he thought. All of a sudden, as he rubbed his thumb over Thomas Jefferson's initials, he realized these engraved initials were not the work of a glass or a wine merchant of the 18th century. It was the very precise work of a modern machine. That THJ inscribed on the bottle, it was the work of a 20th century dentist drill. The Jefferson bottles, or at least those purchased by Bill Koch, were fakes. As for the rest of the batch, we may never know. It's not like we'll just open the world's most expensive bottles of wine on a whim to find out. And after all, fraud isn't the only risk involved in purchasing antique wine. In 1989, a Manhattan wine merchant purchased one of the so-called Jefferson bottles, a 1787 bottle from the Chateau Margaux, a winemaking house dating all the way back to the Claret crazy days of the 12th century. When Bordeaux ruled the world of wine, Chateau Margaux grew rich and enormous. When the glass wine bottle and cork arrived and British wine snobs crowded the auction house, Chateau Margaux was the first bottle of Claret to be sold at Christie's. When the French Revolution arrived, the owners of the Chateau Margaux were so rich they were guillotined. Only the phylloxera epidemic, which wiped out the vineyards for two decades, could keep Chateau Margaux from greatness. Once, while drinking a bottle of Chateau Margaux during his ambassadorship to France, Thomas Jefferson said, There cannot be a better bottle of Bordeaux wine. So, it was with this illustrious pedigree that the wine merchant stood up with his precious purchase to display the bottle to the crowd. As he stood up, however, the wine merchant bumped into the edge of the table, cracking the bottle in half. When it happened, he said later, I was numb. Here in this bottle was 1,500 years of winemaking, from the old growth vines of the 18th century, perfect and untouched by phylloxera, to the fermentation techniques of the greatest wine growers in France, to the wine bottle, built to last for two hundred straight years, to the cork, carefully stored to allow the wine to age, here she was, the crown jewel of Bordeaux, the ultimate wine. Seizing the moment, the restaurant manager dipped his finger into the puddle. He pronounced, Yuck! The famous wine was a chocolate brown goo. It smelled of stewed prunes. 202 years in storage turned one of the great wines of the world into a revolting sludge. There's only so much you can do to fight against the laws of chemistry. After all, as Thomas Jefferson himself once wrote, all red wines decline after a certain age. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. I wish you all a very Merry Christmas this weekend. These days, if you'd like to relax with a good bottle of Bordeaux, you're in luck. 2016 was a great vintage. So, go pick up a bottle of French Red at your local Trader Joe's, which would knock the socks off the medieval kings of England, and raise a glass. Better yet, if you need permission to open up that special bottle at the bottom of the cellar this Christmas, consider this your permission. After you've slept it all off, tell me what wine you drank at the Land of Desires Facebook page. Until next time, Joyeux Noël and Au revoir!